The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Sydney, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. I would love to introduce this amazing panel uh, and their experts in their field. They have been in the metaverse, in NFTs, in Web 3.0 and all the other conversations that we're going to have for years. Uh, and I would like to ask them to deliver one sentence to let you know what their passions are and when they're from. So I'm just going to go this way across the stage. Peter Zing, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Christina. And uh, hi, everyone. It's great to be here in person. It's been so long that I've been in an in-person event. Um, I am the co-founder of Transhumanism Australia, a community dedicated to extending the healthy human lifespans of people all around the world, improving the intelligence and well-being. And we have a community token called Transhuman Coin. Uh, I'm also a digital data solutions lead at KPMG, and uh, we have a KPMG metaverse practice that I'm working with. And uh, yeah, I'm also part of the Singularity Group expert in Singularity Australia. So it's great to be here, Christina. And we're very lucky to have you. Uh, this is Tim Lee. Tim, how, what best describes you? Oh, I don't know. That could be uh, a very dangerous question in some ways. Um, my name is Tim Lee, um, CEO of Walking Between Worlds. We are creating a platform to empower indigenous artists globally to capitalize on NFTs. And we launched our first collection on Saturday. Um, on the same day as, uh, unfortunately, obviously the problems happened in Eastern Europe, which is uh, was always a bit of fun and tragic at the same time. But uh, yeah, so very much deeply involved in the space, been involved professionally since 2015 in the crypto space, uh, written a book on the subject and have been blessed to speak at conferences all over Southeast Asia, India, Dubai, London, New York. Uh, so I'm really super pleased to be here with these wonderful people here. And. We're very lucky to have you as well. And my wonderful co-CEO, Lisa Andrews. What best describes you? I know that's going to be hard in one sentence. You did ask for one sentence, and I'm a rule follower. I do actually like to introduce myself as an energised introvert, actively trying to solve all of the world's problems. I'm the co-CEO of Singularity U Australia with the lovely Christina, CEO of Wavia, and actively investing in a number of different companies, including NFT projects. So uh, professionally investing companies like Dapper Labs, Metagood, Onchain Monkey. We've got some really cool high profile things coming out, even with UNICEF and the Giga Connect project. So um, trying to find new models and ways to help empower people to change the world. Wonderful, thank you. So let's get stuck into the metaverse. The term had its origins in 1992 in a science fiction novel called Snow Crash as a portmanteau of meta, because I can say that because I went to Greek school, because I was made to go to Greek school, um, and universe. So it's after universe, after wherever it is that we are right now. The concept was further explored um, in Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. And it feels like we're at tipping point. It feels like all of a sudden everyone's going to find out what the metaverse is uh, and everyone needs to take part. So we are still at the early adopter stage uh, and that's why you're all here. Uh, and I'd just like to point out that I haven't noticed the imbalance in gender in the audience. So can we need some more girls in there? Can, girls, can you come up the front as well? Thank you very much. Um, but I'd just like to say, ask, ask each of our panelists, what's your best analogy for the metaverse so that we can get this deeper understanding? Actually, let me get an understanding. Who is really familiar with the metaverse, NFTs, Web 3.0, etc.? So we know where to take the conversation. One, two, okay. 
and, and our panelists, I hope. Okay, thank you. Um, all right, so best analogy for right now, the metaverse. Lisa, I'll start with you. Oh, I'm going to go first. Um, who's seen The Matrix? Yeah, are we all living in a digital version of ourselves? Is life even real right now? I'm not sure. I think it's, for me, it's an idea of a digital twin of the current world and how we might actually have the ability to have parallel universes. So for me, I'm actually obsessed at the moment of building my digital twin. And I'd like to invite you all to actually think about your online digital footprint and if I was actually to create a digital version of a human, what does your digital twin look like and how does it react in the metaverse or in the uh, matrix? Tim, how would you define it? I mean, it's very hard to follow on from that, isn't it? In some ways, I mean, it's a digital playground, I guess, in some ways, that's bringing together so many technologies together, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, all underpinned by the internet of value that's actually been coming out from the likes of blockchain and NFTs. So that, and it's that value chain that really gives the commercial impetus to a lot of this. Over to you, Peter. How do you define the metaverse? Yeah, I mean, probably add to the sci-fi as well, with the Ready Player One. We've always seen that, um, that amazing movie, but it was a great book, and there's Ready Player Two as well. And as a transhumanist, you know, it's all about how do we transcend these physical limitations uh, with space and time into the metaverse, so augmented reality and XR, but really that virtual economy now that's really bringing this, these worlds to life. So NFTs, Tim, I'll go to you first. How do you, what's your best analogy? How do you best define an NFT? Um, I think the best way of describing it is as a digital fingerprint of a digital file. That's probably the, the simplest way of describing it in terms of it gives the ability to actually identify ownership of a digital file. And it's that magical digital fingerprint to keep it really, really simple. You can get into all sorts of technical stuff around non-fungible tokens. Don't worry too much about that unless you really want to get uh, bored completely stupid, which I'm happy to do. But yeah, really, it's a digital fingerprint relating to a digital file. Uh, I'd say, yeah, it's a digital file and as well, it's, it doesn't have to be restricted to, you know, images or things like really cute kitties or anything like that. I mean, it's just a reference point to something that could be things like real-time data feeds, could be a private data. And that file could represent, you know, your digital identity in the metaverse, but it could also mean all the profiles about you that you can keep and own that piece of the internet. Lisa? I'd like to take it, I think, a little bit practical and ask you all, have you ever uploaded a video onto YouTube and it said, error, you don't own the digital rights to this music and it's not let you? Has anyone had that experience? And I think when we, we look at the ownership at the moment of a lot of content, there's so much stuff on Instagram, Facebook that people copy and paste or they'll download, they'll steal someone else's quote and they'll upload it as their own. And, so um, the ability to um, prove ownership, I think, for me is an NFT. And I have this vision in the next five years with different technologies and where we're going of how we can actually prove ownership of what we do. So for example, I might actually take a photo of you guys now and upload it to Instagram. A couple of years ago, if I wanted to mint that as my own photo, that I own that, then it would have cost me a few thousand dollars. And at the moment, with a lot of sub-chains and different technologies, we're actually able to mint some of those photos for 15 cents. 
uh, or less and it's getting a lot more cheaper to prove ownership of anything digital. So I think about, and I'll go a little bit futuristic, I know you wanted a short answer on what's an NFT, um, but imagine that quantum computing can visually recognise content on the internet and it might completely wipe out, like YouTube, say, error, this isn't your content. If you've copied and pasted or had someone else's quote or whatever it may be online and it's not your own, the internet might actually completely take it down. And so I see the future of NFTs being more and more important of being able to claim ownership to anything that you physically create. So whether that be artwork, whether it be something that um, you own, for me, um, you know, I'm gonna go all full out and, um, and have an NFT of the rego papers for my car, of all sorts of things that I might own. And so it's just, for me, it's a, a way to prove ownership of something digital. Okay, and last, last definition, so last time we're kind of going to go in a row and then we'll get into more of a, a, a fluid discussion. Best analogy for Web 3.0? I mean, you go through the Web 0 to 3, right? So what was Web 0 before the internet, right? This is the fax machines and letters. And then Web 1 when we had Google, at least to do search engines and indexation. Web 2 was when we had these centralised big tech companies like Facebook and Google essentially monopolised a lot of that sort of component. And Web3 is like having to decentralize all of that. You get to own a piece of the internet. And now we're actually empowering individuals to form communities in these decentralized autonomous organizations to do whatever that there is that the mission of that community is. Otherwise known as a? DAO. Thank you. Uh, because that's a question that we often get asked. What, you know, what, is, what is a DAO? And sometimes I find it hard to remember all the, um, the, the letters for each individual word. Um, Tim, Web 3.0. It's really um, transitioning the internet of information to the internet of value. And I think the important thing to understand about that is, for example, I'm from the UK, can't do anything about that, sorry about that, that's just my heritage. But I've got money in the UK, in a bank in the UK. And if I go via the banking system, it is quicker for me to fly to Heathrow, drive down to Brighton, pick up the cash, go on to Brighton Pier, get some fish and chips, you know, the great <laughs> contribution to oak cuisine that the UK's ever given to, to the globe, um, drive back to Heathrow, fly back in a plane um, back to Sydney with the cash, then going via the banking system. Now, that's ridiculous, right? And when you look at the internet of value, which was initially driven by Bitcoin, initially, but has been you know, subsequently followed by other cryptocurrencies, it's a new digital layer. So what that means is you can transact actually within the technology itself. And as an example, uh, how many of you have heard of OpenSea? Okay, quite a few of you, okay. OpenSea is the largest NFT platform that's in existence at the moment, accounts for about 92% of the market. It um, has actually transacted in the past 12 months, $23 billion worth of volume. And if you consider the art market, for example, is $61 billion and OpenSea Really, that was in the past 12 months. The previous 12 months was $220 million. You get a sense of where the internet of value is going. And none of that 23 billion has gone through the banking system. That's the power of NFTs. I'll race you going to a Greek bank, that's my heritage, just in case you can't tell, and an English bank, we'll have the race. Um, Lisa, Web 3.0. Uh, the biggest distinction is, Peter said it, is centralised versus decentralised and it's the ability to democratise this technology for everyone. Thanks. 
Um, any questions before we move into a, a more fluid discussion? Anyone? Okay. Uh, so my open question to everyone is, will all of this replace the internet? That's what, another question we often get asked. Is all this going to replace the internet? So I'm not going to go around and ask people to answer in order. Canberra and Melbourne, just remember that we've, I've, got, I've got you here. So if you have a question, please ask. Who wants to have a go? Yeah, I'm sure I'm, I'm happy to follow on. I'm not sure that anything ever gets replaced. I think it gets evolved or there's a substitute. And my vision of the next five years of all content being wiped out if you don't actually own it. Um, you know, I have all of these sort of different um, futuristic views of what the world might look like in five to ten years. And the internet certainly won't exist in its current state or form will transact and will do things in a different way. However, it still will be online. Uh, I even envisage that you know, my outfits, and, and we'll talk about some of the uses in the future, are all going to be black or white. And um, uh, there was a, a movie, I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but I'll have a digital overlay where it might be butterflies today that uh, you'll see my, my digital augmented reality of the outfit that I'm wearing and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, is that the internet? It's an evolved version. Yeah, I, I tend to agree that it's, it's a natural evolution um, in terms of the banking system was so fraught with challenges, just like this example of going to the UK and back. Um, whereas with the digital layers, it's generally, trans, you know, the transactions can occur with different layers in seconds. So it's instantaneous international payments. And that becomes vitally important if you're looking at the metaverse, which is global. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, the internet will be the, the, the core fundamentals of everything. Uh, so I don't think it's going to replace it. I think it'll just, you know, there'll be different layers that actually expand on top of it. It'll be the foundational layer, in my view. Yeah, I totally agree. And you see the evolution already with things like OpenSea. You know, it's technically, that's like Web 2.0, because it's still a platform, and they can de-platform you. They can choose not to list your NFTs or make them essentially blacklisted, right? So there are decentralized versions of these NFT marketplaces that are truly Web3 decentralized platforms. And I think over time, these, I guess you can call them networks or protocols were evolved. We're already seeing Ethereum being challenged by a lot of these proof-of-stake uh, networks like Avalanche. And what's going to evolve as well is the type of information they, they transfer as in this network. Think about things when you're communicating not just verbally, but now information and moving towards things like brain-computer interfaces. Things in virtual reality will get closer and closer, more integrated with your biology, and communicating with each other could be beyond just using the internet and sending emails and chats. It could be sending brain signals to one another. That could be a potential next evolution of web 3.0. I also, so when you say, well, I mean, I'm, is anybody not wearing a wearable um, here? Do, hands up if you're not wearing a wearable, if you haven't got an Oura ring or you don't have a, Soren. Okay, hands up. Just can I have a show of hands again? Okay, so I would say greater than 50% of the people in this room are wearing a wearable uh, and the, the information that that's going to be able to provide. And also when we had the, um, the SU Summit uh, in March last year, feels like forever ago, it probably is, uh, but we had Mesh. Microsoft Mesh come and we were playing Jarvis. Lisa, I know that you, you are a Jarvis fanatic. Um, and playing in that space. 
Yeah, I guess the thing that stood out the most when we launched uh, Microsoft Mesh, uh, it was, I think it was March last year, wasn't it? It wasn't that long ago, is that um, we used to have the augmented reality. You'd go in and you'd create something and then you could in, invite someone to actually see it. But this was a way that it was so Ready Player One that we had this huge big conference room and I was able to, in augmented reality, take a digital coffee and put the digital coffee on the tech guy's desk and that was still there the next day and we could leave all these little Easter eggs around the room that who knows what we could have created. The coffee cup was one of those standard little objects that I could put off the shelf. But, you know, we're going to have this creative space to create a digital version of the world and leave all these digital little footprints everywhere, which um, gets wiped clean when you decide that you want to wipe it out. Um, so let me ask you, we've got a mix of businesses here, mixed sized businesses. Um, most are, are housed here at Work Club, so or, you know, have enjoy this beautiful space. What? How do they best take advantage? How do they start looking into what they can do? How can they create situations where we can take advantage of the metaverse, NFTs, Web 3.0? What's a what's a good starting point? And then how do we elevate that so that we really are the early adopters uh, and the people that take things further? I would say the first thing is do between 30 and 50 hours of research before you buy or sell an NFT is number one, right? But I think the, the reason why I'm saying that is it's fraught with challenges, which we'll come on to perhaps a little bit later on. But the key thing is most of the major brands have no idea what the hell's going on, right? And so as smaller you know, SMEs, or people that have, who've actually come here to try and listen and find out, there's a massive opportunity if you understand what NFTs and what Web3 and what the metaverse can do that companies need it to do, right? In terms of you know, finding their audience, branding, and, and generating revenues. So if you're nimble on your feet, you will actually stand a chance of being way ahead of a lot of brands. And you know, brands will come to you um, you know, for, for guidance and expertise if you can actually showcase something that in your particular niche that you're in, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll be saying, oh, look at these guys. Let's talk to them if they're in your market, that sort of thing. So that's what I would say, number one. Yeah, I'll add on to that. And I've been in business advisory for a long time. I actually sold an engineering firm back in 2012 and we had 84 staff at the time. We we're doing really cool visual recognition software and automated train loading software and some really cool stuff back in 2012, but we didn't really even have a website. And you just got business from word of mouth. And so if I think about the strategies and what businesses have had to do, and a lot of businesses do fail um, before they get to the 10 year mark, is that you know in the, the early 2000s, it was um, having a web page and then there was SEO and then there was um, you know paid advertising and then social media or having a CRM and an email database was part of a strategy that you created as part of a business for um, being able to do what you do even better and so this is just another technology for that kind of strategy and so some of the businesses that we're working with now are working out how can they actually implement and integrate some of these different strategies. 
And you mentioned DAOs before, and I look at someone, a company like GitHub, who um, have hardly any employees or not many employees, no assets, no IP, yet they were sold for billions of dollars. And it was because of the community and their open source code and the way that they were able to create community capital. And so um, that's one example that I love from the big end of town. From the smaller end of town, we launched an NFT collection um, called On-Chain Monkey. Has anyone heard of On-Chain Monkey? No? It's, a, it's a collection of 10,000 digital monkeys. So I highly recommend that you actually go and check it out. But we launched this business called MetaGood, which was NFTs for good. And we transacted, we actually traded $8 million of digital monkeys in the first month, where 10% of that um, went to um, the company, five, uh, half of that went to the platform to build out more, and then half went to the DAO, where the community votes on where that kind of, um, where those funds go. And it was the first historical event with 10,000 monkeys all on one um, chain, and uh, it was just amazing to be able to go, oh wow, that worked, and now we've got $400,000 in the bank for charity and $400,000 in the first month to trade even more. And, we're just looking, I think it was um, 8,000 ETH that it's traded um, since September when it launched. And I'm just like, oh, okay, so this is a new business model. And we'll get to the point now. Um, we're looking at um, the Great Barrier Reef legacy at the moment. And they're creating a biobank for all the coral species in the Great Barrier Reef. And there's actually worldwide, there's 800 species of coral. And in the Great Barrier Reef, there's 400 species of coral. And they're collecting, they want to collect all of those different species. And we're about 25% in through that. And what happens when you collect all these little coral fragments is that they double every year. And they've already got their RFID tag on them. And so we thought, how do we create this network of coral where the community can actually host these coral and pair that with an NFT where you can actually have the uh, when the actual original, the OG coral was collected and videos from that journey and then, you know, who's hosted it and you're adding to it. And so it's just a way that every time that those corals double, then there's another NFT that someone else can then host and it's an ongoing business model that creates value for the community and then also the Great Barrier Reef. And so I liken it now for every business. Um, one more example, if that's okay, um, is the Super Bowl. Their tickets to the Super Bowl were just NFTs. And I'm not sure if any of you went to concerts in the 90s. I think I might have been, I was very young in the <laughs> 90s, um, but in early 2000s. And you'd keep your ticket stub. If you went to, I think I went to U2, and you know, the ticket stub was something special before it just became a digital barcode that you went through Ticketek. And so the fact that they've mass put those NFTs out and now that's got value, we're almost creating different ways to have ongoing value. And so the most important thing for a business now is how do you actually have some sort of strategy where you've got an ongoing business model that engages your community, but has an opportunity for ongoing revenue. And the new role is not a social media manager, it's actually a digital manager that manages your digital NFT strategy as well. And it's also very much that concept of giving back. So when you launched um, Walking Between Worlds, uh, for me, having a background in the creative industries, it was really amazing to know that now the artist keeps getting money given back to them with every transaction. I think that that's very much um, something that businesses align with, that whole social bottom line. 
Yeah, I, I mean, one of the key things is that um, if you think of, if you think of it in, in history, Vincent van Gogh, or van Gogh, depending on how you, how you want to pronounce it, um, in his lifetime, he sold 2,000 US dollars worth of paintings. Now, since his death, um, and I know this for a fact because I went through the painstaking calculations of working it out, I went through every single transaction that Vincent van Gogh has had since he passed away in 1891 and converted those in real time relating to the value at that time in today's money. And it's $880 million worth of uh, art that's actually been sold that was belonged to Vincent van Gogh. Now, his family gets none of that, right? With NFTs, for example, um, you can actually program an automatic royalty. And that's where NBA Top Shots, for example, first launched their, uh, their range back in March last year. And, you know, and it's the idea you can get a recurring revenue. So, for example, with Walking Between Worlds, with the indigenous artists, we've got four indigenous artists that, that are within the collection. You know, there's a 5% royalty that comes through every time a piece is sold. And 70% of that goes to, the, goes to the artist, for example. And with the, the main pieces, you know, we're automatically building in. 30% goes to the artist, 30% go to indigenous charities chosen by the artists. And then, you know, there's portion for um, carbon offset and for regulatory and legal guidance and, and developing the platform going forward. So it's this ability to program money is one of the key things of Web3, the metaverse, and that becomes really, really powerful. So I'm very interested in something that you just said, Tim, because part of the thing around, um, around all the transacting, around the minting, etc., is that it has a high cost to the environment. Peter, I know that you're very much um, delving into this space. How do we protect the environment? I know there's actually green energy ability available now we, yeah. in this whole scenario. Yeah, that's right. There's, a, there's always still education to do around this. Obviously, Bitcoin was the you know, start of the cryptocurrency revolution, and that's a proof of work type protocol. So people have to waste energy to not really, you know, to run these calculations. And Ethereum as well is still proof of work, but they're moving towards a thing called proof of stake where you no longer have to waste this energy. You know, there's GPUs that are on shortage of all the gamers out there. And um, you know, now if they're moving to proof of stake, they will actually not waste that level of energy. Um, there's also a business case around how do you use renewable energy to power those energy sources. So yeah, that green type of Bitcoin, you can use things like blockchain to prove the provenance of that as they're going through mining pools. And you're seeing a lot of these organizations trying to do carbon offsets as well. In fact, we're actually working with a company called Beta Carbon and they're actually using uh, a way to buy the clean energy credits, right? Uh, Australian carbon credits units and actually tokenizing that to actually show how people can actually get involved in buying these carbon credits in a democratized way. And so yeah, still a lot of education. I know people think cryptocurrency and NFTs is bad for the environment, but there's, it's moved on and involved quite a lot since then. Um, yeah, I think any new technology is going to take energy and we'd all be uh, much more environmentally friendly if we ran our CRM system in a, in a book and wrote it all down and still had our balancing ledgers is going to be more environmentally friendly. So I think there's got to be that point where we're actually advancing and you wouldn't say to any business now, don't get a CRM. And I think about that and with strategy and just back around to the sort of SMEs and how can they take advantage of it. A lot of talk about 
NFTs at the moment is about art and that industry. And I don't think that that's um, completely right yet. I think it's, it's a way to introduce NFTs, but I think about utility tokens. And so um, even for Work Club, and I've um, already put my strategy hat on, is how do you actually have, instead of a membership card, you had it have an NFT, which is a membership token, which you get your special, your number, your member ID number, and that's on your NFT, and it allows you to do certain things. And then, you know, how do you then add into another sort of business model where you can have a percentage of any money through that utility token go to like a social club was um, back, you know, in a corporate, you'd have a social club, and then the community actually votes on how some of those funds are used, and that's your DAO. And so it's just kind of putting into your mind, how do you actually take advantage or learn more? And like you say, you do the research and um, you know, it's still so new and early, but so were CRMs and the people that jumped on early and were able to create a strategy are the ones that really benefit, have benefited early. I think it is fair to say we're, we're right at the very beginning of a tsunami of change. And we are really early still, even though you know, uh, NFTs have been you know, $23 billion in 12 months is, is quite a significant sum. We are still very, very early. There's lots of flaws in the technology, lots of security issues, which enterprise doesn't want to enter into because there are major risks to, um, to enterprise and, and you know, potential loss of brand value and that type of thing. So it's fraught with challenge. But if you understand it and get beneath it, there are opportunities. It's a green field of opportunity. Yeah, we're seeing these businesses turn into movements, really. I mean, this is a traditional way of looking at your customers and your stakeholders. And with tokenization and NFTs, it's a way to actually get that customer engagement and loyalty coming back more and more with incentives to be part of this community. And with transhumanism, you know, we've been looking at, you know, growing this community for the last seven years. And it was only recently that we've uh, launched the TransHumCoin token. And that's what brought this global movement together. I mean, over 13,000 tokens in the first couple of months, uh, holders, and uh, we've actually reached tens of millions of dollars in market cap because people see value of opting in to transhumanism and investing in it. And what we're doing with that is able to reinvest that and donate back to the community who are working on transhuman projects. You know, these longevity projects like crowdfunding for longevity and uh, also looking at things like autonomous wheelchairs, being able to donate to that sort of development um, with the community token. Um, any questions? So most people um, in this room are part of a business, a small business, medium-sized business. Any questions? Uh, yes. So can you give me that question briefly so I can repeat it for Melbourne and Canberra so they know what we're about to go? I'm glad that was a briefer version of the question that I do remember. <laughs> do you want me to summarise that? Yes, please. The Dow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it was really the question was where the value, where the value is coming from the board eight yacht club you specifically referenced, how more value is coming from the being part of the community and the DAO structure. So essentially in broad brush, 
I mean, with the Board Ape Yacht Club, um, I mean, how many have not heard of the Board Ape Yacht Club? Has everybody heard of it? Um, better question, does anyone in here own a Board Ape Yacht Club? Not me, but anyone? Okay, okay. I think the floor price, I think the, the minimum is about 250. It's 87 ETH at the moment, so it's about, yeah, it's, if you look in Aussie terms, that's probably about, yeah, a lot. It's, oh, let's it's, do, a, it's north let's of. Let's do the math of 20, 270. It's about, it's about yeah, it's just million? quite 3,000, 3,000 US at the moment, so it's a lot. It's, <laughs> it's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. but, the, but the key thing is with the Board Ape Yacht Club, where people are making real money from it, is actually by owning the Board Ape Yacht Club and actually having the commercial rights to their individual Board Ape Yacht Club. And the whole issue of intellectual property is a massive issue that we can, we can explore, but that's where people are really making the true value from their Board Ape Yacht Club. They can generate a lot of extra revenues by actually having a Board Ape Yacht Club that has, it's, it's recognized as a blue chip NFT, if there is such thing with a market that's 12 months old, broad brush. But, um, so it's very much by the intellectual property, that gives them a lot of value. And being part of the community helps, because clearly, I mean, you know, there are a number of clubs in New York, for example. If you go to the club and you show your board eight yacht club membership, you get in free of charge. Now, the clubs are, are, are realistic here, that if you own a board eight yacht club that's, you know, worth 350,000, to one and a half million, whatever it might be, you're gonna have some cash, which means you're gonna bring your friends in, therefore if they give you free entry, you're gonna spend money. So it's, it's still the same commercial sort of dialogue that's going on, but essentially it's having that intellectual property, which is where they're making the, a lot of additional revenues coming through. Yeah, so it's what the NFT represents, and it was uh, Justin Bieber, I think he just spent a million dollars to join the board um, Ape Yacht Club and you know and have that nft and i think about personal branding now and what your wallet looks like does anyone here own um, more than five nfts anyone we've got a few people um i actually i like the there's a number of different wallets and on binance i i do have the transhuman coin uh, but I, I think about what's in my wallet and what people can see. It's almost like my new social media. And so if you actually look at my wallet, you'll see that I've got on-chain monkeys and, um, and part of that owning a monkey, that 5% that goes through whatever's traded is um, we're actually helping Ukraine at the moment. So we're, uh, we've got a number of polls out at the moment for the community to vote on how we spend that money and how we're actually able to help people in Ukraine. And so uh, my personal brand, I've aligned with OnChain Monkey. I love what they stand for. I've also got in that collection, I've got the UNICEF Giga Connect. I've got 10, um, they look like castles. They're like princess castles. And so they're quite pretty, but every time they're traded, 20% of the, um, the funds go to helping schools connect to the internet. So the UNICEF Giga Connect project is um, they've mapped out digitally all of the internet connectivity of over 5 million schools in the world and they're measuring the real-time speeds and so um, part of this NFT collection was to help get the rest of those schools connected to the internet and it's a digital representation to that. So if you look at my wallet, it's kind of I'm owning what I stand for. So I know that um, you know, there's a lot of people that just want cool things and stuff like that and that's kind of been that artwork. But I imagine um, just this vision of coming to my home in the future, and you'll all be invited because it's going to be a really big, nice castle up on the hill somewhere, I'm sure. Um, but I'll have all of white walls. Everything will be completely white. And when you put your Apple glasses on, 
you'll see my NFT collections and everything that I stand for around my home. And so I think that branding piece of it is important. That's, yeah, and that's going to translate to the corporate level as well. You know, um, it's people virtue signaling, sure, on public media and things like that. But if you're holding these NFTs on your balance sheet, for example, KBMG Canada just purchased the World of Women NFTs on the balance sheet to support the causes they really stand for. I see this as going to roll across all the ASX listed companies, the global Tech 500, S&P 500. I think, yeah, it's interesting. Visa bought a crypto, a crypto punk about six months ago. They paid 150 grand for it. But the amount of publicity they got, I think it was valued at something like $250 million worth of equivalent advertising from the, the amount of coverage they had as a result of that. And I think what we're actually seeing, though, um, is, is a transition into something that's going to become really big. Um, how many of you are on Twitter? Okay, not as many, okay. If you're interested in the metaverse, get on Twitter yesterday, trust me. And there's a reason for that. Twitter, literally within the past six weeks, have enabled you to identify your image photograph, whatever that might be on Twitter. If it is an NFT, they will link your image to your wallet that's actually holding the NFT and they'll put a hexagonal shape around your image. Now, what that means is Twitter are becoming an identity play because that reinforces who you are. So if you've got a board at your club, sure, you can right-click and save it to your computer. Everybody can do that, but you can't own it. And so Twitter are, uh, are doing that. And where that becomes important, just as a, just as a concept and idea for you to think about, all right? Within the Walking Between Worlds concept, we're looking at a metaverse structure for indigenous galleries. And the idea is, if you've actually got a, a piece in the collections, you can use your collection to get entry into the galleries and all the immersive experiences free of charge, for example. And there's a thing that is also coming out called a POAP, a proof of attendance protocol. Don't worry too much about the technology, but what it means is you can identify that you have been in one place here, one place here, one place here, one place there. Imagine that from a brand's perspective. If you're trying to get people to actually, um, to, if you're trying to engineer a structure for them to actually earn additional loyalty points, whatever it might be, you can actually structure something digitally linked into that identity piece. So it's opening up all sorts of business models. I just thought I'd naturally throw that one out there. Sounds like my COVID app. I've been there, there, and there. Um, there was another question here. Did you, did you have a question earlier? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did. Um, probably a few trains of thoughts ago. But um, I was just wondering, what is the, I guess, main objection when you go to businesses and say, here's the opportunities, you know, there's so much you can do. What's the main pushback or concern that, that you know, is raised you know, when you're encouraging yeah. this idea? So the main pushback from the business around these ideas? Yeah, I mean, for us at KPMG, we're seeing a lot of initial clients just don't know much about it. Um, and if they do, they go, oh, what are the regulatory hurdles, you know, from an accounting tax, a regulatory corporate treasury? You know, their marketing and retail teams are saying, hey, you know, we should offer, accept cryptocurrency. And the treasury teams are going, oh, what do we do with that cryptocurrency? Do we spend it or do we convert it right back to Australian? There's a whole navigation around that. And also on the investment side, do you include cryptocurrencies and these metaverse plays as well in the NFTs 
on your balance sheet? Um, do you actually hold that in your portfolio? And how much do you want to hold that in your portfolio? Is it even reasonable and is it safe and is it responsible to do that in the first place? So these are the challenges we're navigating, but there's a lot of education that we are working with our colleagues in the ecosystem to sort of tell that story and bring the research into light. And uh, I think over time we'll get there as well. I think it's been an 11 year journey so far and uh, I think the next decade is gonna be really exciting. I think I'd summarize it with two acronyms, WTF, NFT, <laughs> right? And that's where's the future, not what you were thinking. No, they, 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 when you talk to corporates, they do not understand. If you think at board level, all right, um, just think of the age of most people who are on boards, right, who have to make ultimately strategic decisions. Their exposure to this is very limited. And so as a result, they really want to understand what the hell is going on. And that's why I say to all of you, 30, 50 hours research, you'll get a real sense of what's going on. Because, you know, brands know they have to be there. You know, and you've got the ASX or the, you know, the New York Stock Exchange, whatever it is, all the investors are saying, are almost sort of saying, where's your, where's your Web3 strategy? Where's your metaverse strategy? And it may be the situation that they don't really understand what's going on, but they need to show they're doing something. And that's where there's lots of opportunity to showcase, yeah, this is what's happening. Maybe look at test cases. If you're a small business, look at ideas where you can actually help them actually with that narrative. So it's, um, you know, there's this, it really is WTF, you know, where's the future, not the naughty bit. I think you both summarised it really well in um, what I used to use as an analogy all the time is that large corporates are like cruise ships and they're really powerful but sometimes they take a little while to steer and they do have that regulatory environment that they need to navigate but small businesses are like speedboats and they can do it super quick and they'll zig and they'll zag and they'll work it out and they'll get there and so I think that's probably the biggest opportunity and the excitement I have about this space is because SMEs literally can start something straight away OpenSea was a startup a couple of years ago, really, and it's a it's billion dollar company now. So um, that's the opportunity and the ability to move fast that I think we all have as, as SMEs to be able to make the most of it. Uh, so Canberra and Melbourne, you're very quiet on the questions. If you would like to ask a question, please send it through on CBOX, either that or my app's not working. Um, Peter, did you want to add something? Oh, yeah, no, I'm just saying, yeah, there's a lot of VC funding as well. They really do believe that as well. To, you need a lot of the little ships to help steer the big ship. And also for, for you to be involved, just on your question earlier on the SMEs, get involved personally. Set up a MetaMask wallet. You can do that in five minutes. You know, try to connect to some exchanges, you know, and, and then get some cryptocurrency and have a go at these metaverse worlds, like Decentraland. You can even join one, enter it as a guest without a, a MetaMask wallet right now. So just have a go, learn from doing, and then do the research to see how you can make sure you invest responsibility as well. Sorry, no, I was just gonna say, I mean, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, get in there and, and get involved, but only play with any money you can afford to lose in the early stages, all right? Because you will screw up, trust me. And there will be people who are trying to scam you, and some of you, right here, right now, will lose money to a scammer. I can assure you. Be careful with telegrams as well, Oh, because there's, there's a massive, I, I think it's like, sort of, it's almost like asymmetric warfare in terms of the scammers know exactly what's going on and they see the fresh bait coming in, you know? And they're like the sharks. As soon as they see that fresh bait coming in, they're just going to wait. So that's why you've got to do 30 to 50 hours research. And I know it's a pain in the ass, right? But 
you're going to protect yourself and you know it will give you a foundation to work forward from because there's massive opportunities but massive risks yeah i think definitely opportunities and i feel that that's coming more from an investing side is that right to actually invest in an nft that you say do all the research it's i think in general terms because you know if whatever business you're actually looking at that you're working with there are going to be bigger risks in the nft space and the metaverse space than are in normal life because the regulation is so far behind the technology and so if you if you have got a metamask wallet and i've got metamask wallets and i'm sure a lot of you have there's no um, call center in india that's going to help you much as you might hate those call centers in the philippines or india with the banks you don't have that Right. And there's been lots of stories. You lose your ID and your login details, and there's no insurance on that. <laughs> this, I mean, there are some players now looking at some insurance coming through for if you're on an exchange, but you don't have the same protections right now. And that's one of the things that's holding back this whole space. Because once the regulation comes into play, and you know, in fairness, Australia is actually doing some really good stuff in that um, but once the regulation comes into play nfts will explode beyond compare uh, compare and we'll be looking at tokenization of of property we'll be looking at tokenization of a lot of different things my app's working so scott says hi scott um from camp from melbourne are businesses opening virtual shop fronts in places like decentraland yeah, I mean, that's happening right now. And yeah, like I was saying, there's probably 800,000 users in Decentraland, still early days. Um, and the number of daily active users kind of reminds me of Second Life, like back when Telstra Big Coupon jumped in. But it's, it doesn't hurt to have a go, right? I mean, the base price of Decentraland land is not as bad as Board at Yacht Club, right? But it's still significant. It's like 10,000 US at the moment in, in the native token mana. But it's a great way for companies to experiment you know, at a relatively short amount of cost to do straight away. Samsung had an event in Decentraland. They got a poor turnout, right? So it's gonna be like, how do you experience, how do you create the experiences in these metaverses that link back to actual results for your customers? And I think that's what people are learning about and that's why they're doing to learn from those initial trials and people are learning from each other as well on this journey. And I think it is about um, looking at your existing brand strategy. For example, Dolce & Gabbana had a suit that was for sale, or sold rather, in the metaverse for $670,000, okay? Now, as part of that, you could go to the Dolce, or they fly you to the Dolce & Gabbana factory and do, you know, actually hand make a bespoke suit of exactly the same nature. And so we're, we're gonna see this um, there, and there are different words that are coming out. There's fidgetal is a word where you've got physical and digital coming together, or metaphysical. I mean, there is some, but that obviously has a different connotation. So we're going to see physical to digital, digital to physical coming out. So brands will get extension for their existing brands. What I love about that is the new economic opportunities it creates for people to have jobs as well. So if you think about at the moment, there's um, 7.8 eight, nine billion people in the world as of yesterday. I won't do the rounding error on that. 
Um, but over 50% of the, the population hasn't been on the internet in the last five years and they're all coming online. So there's about 3.8 billion people coming online at super speeds in the next five years. And so anything that you could do in the physical world, um, there's opportunities in the digital world. So being a fashion designer in the digital world, being a property designer, an architect, you can actually design all of these different things in the metaverse, which is an ability for people in developing nations to be able to have jobs and get online early and be able to create wealth for themselves just by having some sort of different digital job than, that hasn't existed before. I've got another question from Chris. Uh, with regards to an ever-changing, Chris, you haven't told me where you're from, so guess what, you're either from Melbourne or Canberra. Um, with regards to an ever-changing metaverse, it's understandable that more and more businesses and environments pop up, just like the video game industry. How do we recognise what the right one is to engage with or invest in? Yeah, I definitely see that um, almost like marketing companies at the moment, they didn't exist 20 years ago. And so there'll be a number of different professional services and marketing companies that offer this as a service. And I think it's similar if you're going to buy any services, get a couple of different quotes. And there's been a few ways that we've done things in the past and um, with some of the collections that I've done with my colleagues internationally, it's been just for a percentage of the NFTs that are created and you're actually both going into this with risk yourself, so it's a joint venture. Whereas other times it's been a fee-for-service model where you might pay a designer $50,000 to do a strategy and a collection, um, but it is gonna be a similar, it's a professional services model, so get quotes, get references, and similarly just you know um, protect yourselves. Um, there was a question down here as well. Did you have a question or a comment? No. Oh, there's okay. So the question for um, Melbourne and Canberra is, are we seeing more things go into augmented reality and virtual reality? Yeah, I think we're seeing that, you know, with Niantic, they're gonna be throwing so much money at this, bringing Pokemon Go into a metaverse world. So you're catching Pokemon probably as, you know, and earning that as well in tokens. So you're gonna have all these people walking around the park, just like they've done with Axie Infinity, with playing games with kids, and but also the Philippines are actually paying more than their minimum wage over there by just playing this game. And yeah, I'd really love to see when augmented reality really takes off. Right now we're all waiting for Apple and the Apple glasses to come out. There is some makeshift ones and Oculus Quest with the MetaQuest is going to get there with the next project. Um, but yeah, I think the adoption already is happening with our smartphones with the QR codes. So I think there's going to be some really interesting niche play to earn type games coming out shortly as well. Another example that I really enjoyed was just decentralized finance of actually going to a property uh, let's say it's an, an auction and being able to post and say, hey, I want to tokenize, I want to buy this property, I'm going to tokenize the finance of it. And then you're actually putting it up and people can jump in and give you a dollar each if they want or you know, $100,000 each if you're in Australia and you want to get lots and lots of people to follow you. Um, but the, the ability to be able to tokenize anything. And so we'll see more and more of that. And that's kind of that web 3.0 coming in where you're actually able to prove ownership and, and stake. So um, finance and every different industry, there's so many use cases that are going to come out. And so for startups in particular, um, one of the things that I was inspired by 
actually Bill Tai, and when he was the seed founder in Zoom. And I don't know if anyone knows the founding story of Zoom. Eric was working for Cisco Webex and he had 16 teams. And every time someone would update a web browser, he actually had to have his teams rewrite all of the different code and make it work. And he said, why can't you just click a button and it works? And Zoom, you may all know, you click a button and it works. And so I think, um, you know, why can't, time. Why, why can't I just submit a loan application and get it straight away? I don't know if any of you work for banks, but it seems to be a lot of delay at the moment because of staff shortages with COVID and it's six week turnaround to get a loan. So if you can remove the friction from any process using Web 3.0 technology, then you're going to have a really good business model. There was a question up here. Yep. Can you repeat the question before you answer it? Yeah, the question is, how do companies handle um, AML and KYC? In other words, anti-money laundering, know your customer. It's a really important and challenging question um, because the technology as it stands at the moment, and this will be different to where we go in the future, I think, is that the underlying technology is what is known as pseudo-anonymous. So you can see every single transaction that has happened but you can't see that I've sent money to Christina you know, as, as individual human beings. So I think it's a, it's a challenge in certain layers of the, um, of, of the whole underlying um, structures. I mean, if you actually go to an exchange, there's AML and KYC there now. That's mandatory you know, for people, unless you go to what is known as the, a decentralized exchange, but you're in the lap of the gods there in terms of risking what potentially goes on because that's where the scammers will be more than anywhere. So it is a major issue that I think will actually um, come out. And if there are any Bitcoin maximalists, and you know, those are people that are just totally in favor of Bitcoin, I think they're gonna hate me. Um, so I'll look right down the camera and say, I think it's gonna be within the next five years, there will be an identity layer built into Ethereum and an identity layer built into Bitcoin because there's too much you know, uh, counterterrorism funding is going to be a major issue. And also tax, to be honest. You know, if you, if you, you know, there's a lot of people, um, I mean, with the project that we, we, we've been working on, we, you know, we've got a number of quotes in on different areas, and they're saying, oh, yeah, pay me in Ethereum. I say, okay, that's fine, give me an invoice. Oh, no, we're in Web3, we don't do invoices. Well, sorry, we do, you know. And it, it's all this, it's all this, um, People talk about decentralization, and I think, frankly, it's overrated, if I'm brutally honest. I think the idea of communities is something, but purely pure decentralization for the sake of decentralization, I think it's overrated. But it's going to be a major problem uh, that is going to be rectified. Tim, I haven't got that money that you've sent me into my bank account yet. Yeah. <laughs> I can prove that it has. Uh, and if anyone wants to buy a butterfly NFT, I've got one, and I promise I'll donate all the money to the Ukraine. Um, yeah, I mean, look at, say, Ukraine and Russia right now. I mean, if, if you're relying on a centralised authority for access to your bank accounts, right, and they decide to completely disrupt that or invade the country, 
how are you supposed to deal with that? I think there is an element of decentralization that's economic freedom as well, and which goes to the mythos of Bitcoin. And some of these centralized exchanges, you know, are that sort of web 2.5 type layer, right? They can help with your AML KYC, they can help with, you know, the identifying as people on board to exchanges, who they are. But we're starting to see decentralized versions of that. For example, this uh, solution called Proof of Humanity. That's on the Ethereum blockchain. And what that relies on, it's, it's an anti-cyber solution, right? Peer-to-peer -peer human validation. So someone that wants to you know, prove that they are them, they take a video and their wallet address, and they say, this is the real me. Um, they essentially get vouched. So someone that's already on the platform says, okay, well, I know that person. I'll let them go through the registration process. Once that's been vouched, everyone can see that profile that's looking to be registered. And they can say, that's a deep fake. That is clearly not a real human. Or, you know, they're essentially saying, no, I know that person, that's not his real name. So that's how we're seeing these decentralized validations of almost like a KYC. And that identifier turns them from pseudonymous to someone that can't be identified, and their transactions are also revealed on the blockchain. I so think what we really need way. is decent, honest humans at the end of the day. Um, yeah. So the, yeah, so Can the you question was, question yeah, with, um, with El Salvador was you know, using a lot of Bitcoin, how is that going to change the, the whole financial environment, essentially? Yeah. I mean, I, I, think, I think we've seen um, with what's happened in Ukraine in the past couple of days with the sanctions, how the US have been able to take Russia off the SWIFT system, right? So, you know, that's a centralized structure. So I take on board what, what Peter was saying. But I think, you know, um, you know, Bitcoin as a layer is very much, it is an open source monetary network. No government controls it. Now, when you look at the amount of dollars that have been printed in the past 18 months, you know, the, the, it's just a, a massive J-curve, the amount of money that's actually been printed and inflation coming through, et cetera, et cetera. And so Bitcoin does give some economic freedom to a degree, but in many ways, it tends to be weaker cases or basket cases. And, and, I, and I'm not putting Ukraine in that basket case category. That's a completely, there's a humanitarian need that's there. But I don't think there's any harm in saying, yes, I'm Tim Lee, I've, made, I've, made, I've donated to Ukraine or to the you know, Ukraine situation. I don't think there's any, there should be any problem in that necessarily. Unless, of course, if you're out of Iran where maybe you know, the government doesn't want that sort of stuff to go on, so I think, I think the there's, there's the, the there will be a place for Bitcoin as an open source monetary network, but it's it's always tended to be in weak cases. Like I mean, in Venezuela, you know that people are using Bitcoin, um, you know, to, because there's inflation at a million percent, um, and even in in the days of you know early early Bitcoin, sort of around 2012 to 14, Argentina had massive inflation, so people were using Bitcoin. And they were, there was a complete underground market called Las Cuevas, which were actually converting the peso into, into Bitcoin. So it does have a role, I think, to be honest, a limited role, in my opinion. Um, but you know, in certain cases, absolutely, it will have. But the, but the underlying technology of blockchain that's behind it is driving central bank digital currencies, which is another layer of conversation 
outside of the, the metaverse. Well, I think, I think it's all part of it. I mean, we are seeing this new world order where the central governments are creating these central bank digital currencies to maintain that control. We're seeing you know, the replacement of the SWIFT system potentially between Russia and China with their central bank digital currency. And uh, essentially what El Salvador is doing is the start of this revolution with Bitcoin as your legal tender. Potentially could see a domino effect because if you're a country like Nigeria that's facing that inflation and as a government you're trying to implement an e-Naira, a CDBC, a lot of our transhuman coin holders are saying we don't want to use the e-Naira, we don't trust our government because we've been experiencing 20% inflation every single year for the last five years. And so they're using transhuman coin as a way to transact and maintain and hold on to that value. But Bitcoin, if that becomes legal tender, you're essentially protecting your own country from external factors like US influence or Chinese influence. Legal tender is in, as Bitcoin means that you can issue bonds, Bitcoin bonds like El Salvador has done, and not have to worry about the International Monetary Fund disrupting what you do within your sovereign country. So really democratizing that for your I can see you all reaching for your microphones. I'm going to bring it back to a business level because that's <laughs> yeah. in the room. Um, any questions? Um, ben from Canberra, I've got your question. It's going to be the last question that we ask. Are there any more questions in the room? Yeah? Um, in terms of like the centralization, decentralization debate, how do you see the role of the natural purchaser sort of central things like centralized hardware? Like, say, Apple comes out with VR and AR, ASM owners will use that. And then also, say, if Sandbox or Decentraland becomes a big player, is there a problem with that, that being a centralized? Lise, can you repeat the question and have a go? I think this is probably more Peter's space. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, so can you question, repeat the question yeah. and then go? Yeah, yeah, the question was, you know, centralization versus decentralization in the hardware context, for example, Apple's hardware ecosystem, the walled garden, versus um, the metaverses like the sandbox or decentraland that allows anyone with an Ethereum wallet address, for example, to connect in. And yeah, we're going to see that quite a lot, which is why there's so much backlash against Facebook's meta getting into the metaverse, because they're really relying on centralizing all that. That's the concept. They say they want to have that interoperable, like, you know, with the open XR, being able to be configuring your develop on one platform, you should apply to all. But at the end of the day, they're, you know, they're trying to be a profitable business. They're going to try to monetize all that information for you. So this open source approach, I think, goes into the ethos of Web 3.0. Anything that you're designing, essentially, should be trying to be either open source technologies, which is we're seeing a lot of these projects, like Ethereum Challenges and Avalanche, or open sourcing their code on GitHub, and also the interoperability of being able to go across platforms, taking your avatar from metaverse to metaverse. So this multi-metaverse type strategy, I think, will win out over time rather than just locking your consumers. I'm going to jump in, Tim. <laughs> okay, you, 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 you go. You go. I'll come after you. I think one of the things that we think about with um, centralised versus decentralised that's a common um, challenge and thought for everyone is around the privacy. And so if you think about the centralised way of Facebook and whatnot and, and people boycotting some of these big centralised platform, it's because of our privacy. And so with hardware, I mean, my aura ring at the moment, it tracks my sleep, all sorts of things. I'm sure you could hack this thing if you really want to know, um, you know, my average heart rate and stuff, go for it. But when you're starting to talk about the metaverse and your whole entire life and all of this digital footprint and things that you have, it's getting a little bit more um, serious and that's why we probably tend to want things to be decentralised. And so I sort of gave up a little while ago of just um, you know thinking that I'd rather the data than not. And there was a big hoo-ha 
that's a technical word, uh, in Australia, I know in the, the early 2000s when Google Maps was actually um, mapping all of their street view. I don't know if everyone, anyone remembers that, but there was a lot of press around how they were stealing our Wi-Fi data and they were tracking all of our IP addresses. And um, I don't know if anyone actually read the terms and conditions when they went onto Google Maps or if they installed Google or used Google on their phone, but I'm pretty sure that you accepted the terms and conditions and now they know where you are all the time, not just where your house is. And so every time that we utilize technology, we're giving up an element of privacy. And um, I think we're consciously making that decision because it's a win-win, there's a trade-off. Like you say, the value economy, that we say, oh, absolutely, I'd actually value having the metaverse or wearing Apple glasses. So I am prepared to give away and sign your terms and conditions, which I'm probably not gonna read, to be able to use them. And so central companies, like big companies, are gonna have big advantages. <laughs> No, but, but I think it's a really important thing to, to be aware of because, you know, Meta or Facebook, you know, the, the train crash that was uh, Facebook, I mean, they're spending $10 billion on the, on the metaverse, right? So that is right in the heart of their strategy. And they're looking at a walled garden. You've got Disney have, have just come out and saying they're, la they're launching a walled garden metaverse. I mean, and it's interesting that two weeks after Facebook announced they were spending $10 billion on a walled garden metaverse, the Winklevoss brothers announced they'd raised $400 million to create an open source metaverse. Now, just in case you're not familiar with the Winklevoss brothers, they were the guys that, um, that sued Mark Zuckerberg for Facebook. Because so they invented it, but then they yeah. invested in Bitcoin and, and they invested money. So there's going to be a massive <laughs> battle that's going to go on, and it's going to be a billionaire's <laughs> game of I'm going to win, you're not. Yeah. Uh, this is an amazing conversation. Could go further. You, you've got some. So with every problem, seconds. there's an opportunity. And um, we're seeing Web3 solutions to these privacy issues. So we're seeing protocols like Ethereum. So this is built on the Elrond platform. And they're enabling a data digital exchange for you to safely and securely not only just own it, but also monetize your data. And so these are the sort of opportunities that we're going to see, you know, for the startups to bring about and be able to use this zero knowledge proofs um, to be able to help verify that information without giving that information away. So I am going to encourage everybody when I, I've got one more question from Ben that we were going to wrap with, uh, but please ask your questions to, I'm going to unleash these people on the dinner table in a minute. Uh, and please ask any questions that you would like to. But the final question that I'd like to put to you for one brief comment each is one piece of advice that you would give someone entering the metaverse, what's the best way for them to start? Peter? Uh, for me, it was, yep, yeah, set up a MetaMask and try Decentraland. It's uh, free just to go in. But yeah, if you think about investing, like Tim says, you do your research and make sure you do, uh, don't spend anything that uh, you don't know, uh, feel okay to lose. <laughs> I mean, uh, I would say, yes, the best entry point is Decentraland. It's been around since 2016, if my memory right. So it's, it's been proven as a, as a technology. It's still incredibly clunky. And the UX, you know, the user experience is absolute crap. But that's because it's written by coders. It's not written by people that understand UX. I'm not a UX person, but I know a lot of people who are. And it's just a nightmare. But certainly Decentraland is a proven, easy to use, well, easy-ish to use, but the experience is pretty poor. But you get a sense of where it's going. 
I actually am thinking of a quote from a, a dear friend, Tony Robbins, and he shared that all businesses are limited by the psychology and the skill of the owner. And so um, imagine it's back in the early 2000s or um, the, what's the teens, the tweens? Um, is, you know, what would you actually do as a business owner? Would you get in early? Would you do research? Would you want to make the most of the opportunity? And I think if you can upskill and up psych um, to be able to make the most of the opportunity that is coming, then that's the best thing that you can do. And sometimes it's just start small, jump on open sea, get it, start to understand it. Uh, and my advice to all of you is to pick an area, pick, pick a group and work together. So some of you will go and research this thing, some of you might research something else, some of you will research something else and then come together and have a discussion And because then you'll have a thirded or halved or whatever the work. Um, I would love to thank our panellists, Lisa Andrews, Tim and Peter Zing. So could you please thank them? And to Sarah and Eileen and the amazing team at Work Club, thank you very much for hosting this. Uh, it was very hard for me to keep these people limited to time, which clearly I didn't do very well. So thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for your questions. Thank you, Canberra and Melbourne, for your questions as well. Please stay, have a drink, uh, and let's have a piece of Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world.